Well, this morning uh, we continue in our series, uh, and we are going to be reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. I'll bring the text up on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So we're continuing our series this month on, uh, on the advent of Christ, using the song O Holy Night as our theme. And we have considered already how the, the, what the song says there about long lay the world and sin and error pining, how the world was pining for uh, and is, continues to pine for redemption that God brings about through his Son. And with that revelation, last week we talked about feeling that thrill of hope and considering the promise that the Lord made through Isaiah to Ahaz that a child would be <coughs> born of the virgin who would bring about the fullness of deliverance. And today we wonder, or we ponder rather, how in view of Christ's birth, a weary world rejoices. Indeed, it is a weary world in which we, <coughs> we inhabit. And why all of a sudden losing it here? It's a weary world that we inhabit. Uh, we're only a week out from Christmas Eve, and with a bunch of kids and all the festivities, I'll tell you I'm weary. <coughs> but uh, but um, you might be weary. Not because of the tiredness of festivities, but because of hardship and suffering. You might be weary because, uh, because there's, there's difficult things going on in your lives. We just shared in our prayer requests things that are going on that, are weir that weary us. But what is it to be wearied? What is it to be weary? It means to be tired, worn out. We can be weary of suffering, weary of medical problems. Have you yourself or you've heard a loved one say, I'm just tired of feeling like this. 
I'm tired of feeling, of being sick. It's weariness. We can be weary of sin. Weary of evil. You hear the news. You see what's going on in Israel and Palestine. What's going on in our country. What's going on downtown in our own city. Be weary. We can be weary of ourselves. Weary of our own sinful foolishness. I remember in college expressing to a friend of mine who didn't understand it or share it, but, but expressing to him my own exasperation with my own sinful habits. Just, it was just frustrated with myself, and he just did not understand that concept. He was just not, uh, he was Episcopal, so I don't know. But, uh, but, it was, uh, but, uh, but, it, but just like, I was just like, I'm tired of sinning. I'm tired of the sinful in here. Get sick of it inside of me. Be weary of ourselves. And even today, sadly, that's not just college. Even today, I get worn out by myself, by me, by my flesh, by the fallen world, by the devil. But in O Holy Night, we sing a song not just about a weary world, but a weary world that has weary sinners, that has strugglers laboring in the gloom and the darkness, rejoicing. So why does a weary world rejoice at the birth of a child? Well, there's two reasons that Isaiah gives us in this passage. First, a weary world rejoices in the birth of Christ because the promises of God are coming true. And secondly, because the Savior has come into the world. We'll look at each this morning. First, a weary world rejoices because God's promises are coming true. We see this in verses 1 through 3. And, we can, and there's essentially a promise that we can find in each of the first uh, verses here. Verse 1 and verse 2 and verse 3. And in verse 1, we see the promise that God will bring us from gloom to glory. Isaiah describes this massive shift that is going to occur, particularly in the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. These are the two northernmost tribes of Israel before Assyria came and exiled them. Therefore, what he's saying there is that the first tribes who lost everything to the Assyrians in God's judgment for their disobedience and idolatry, will experience blessing. Living in exile, in the anguish of judgment for sin, uh, the people of God, they lived in gloom. Gloom is, uh, whenever I say the word of gloom, I think of London. There's that fog, you know, gloomy. It's always foggy and, and, and overcast in, in, in England, and, and, and there's gloom. Also, especially, I'm a big Sherlock Holmes fan, so I always have a gloomy picture when I think of London. And so, but gloom is, is partial or even total darkness. It is the presence of darkness in our midst, the condition of the world in which we live. It is, it is marked by anguish and suffering. But Isaiah promises a time when there will be no gloom anymore. 
In fact, in the later time, after God does something incredible, he doesn't say what yet, but something incredible, that he will make glorious the way of the sea, the Galilee of nations. Indeed, the gospel writer Matthew actually cited this prophecy, finding its direct fulfillment in the ministry of Jesus. He quotes this verse in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, describing Jesus' movement into the territory of Galilee. And what was Jesus doing? What did Matthew tell us he was doing there? He was preaching the gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But how exactly, even noting that, how exactly has the glory come, as Isaiah says here? Well, first, the glory comes by virtue of the Son of God, who is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And secondly, the glory of God will come fully and finally to drive out all gloom, all the gloom of sin and darkness when Christ returns. And truly, in, in, at that time, in that day, in the kingdom, it will be said that the Lord has made glorious by the way of the sea. Secondly, in verse 2, Isaiah says that God will illuminate the darkness. Isaiah says the people who walked in darkness, that is those who lived in the gloom of darkness, have seen a great light. He repeats this concept by describing a land as as one experiencing deep darkness. It is in this desperate darkness that we that with that, that you know that kind of darkness that seems like light cannot pierce. Like the people of Judah who saw the northern kingdom get wiped out by Assyria, which perhaps was good news in the short term, but now what happens when they're gone and Assyria turns their sights onto them? You know, if you were in the forest staring down the barrel of a wolf, a hungry wolf who has made clear his intentions regarding you and dinner, you might feel good for a moment when a bear suddenly comes pounding out of the woods and scares the wolf away until the wolf's gone and it's just you and the bear. Note how here darkness is associated with affliction and suffering but also with divine judgment for sin. But Isaiah promises a time when light will come to dispel that darkness. The Apostle Paul recalled not this text in particular, but the the act of light shining in the darkness when he actually referred back to Genesis and God calling light out of darkness from nothing, but, but by the sheer power of his word and his will. And noted that the same God that, who did it, that did that is the same God who causes the light of his grace to shine in our hearts and illuminate our souls. In, in the Gospel of Luke, John the Baptist's father prophesied concerning John the Baptist, his son, that as the prophet sent from God, he had come to give light to those who sit in darkness so that they would be guided in the way of peace. The gospel writer John, as we'll actually look at next Sunday, certainly picked up on this idea, albeit more directly than Paul did, at the opening of his gospel. 
But he, he explicitly there in the opening of the Gospel of John identifies Jesus not as one who has come to shine light, but who is the light of life that has come into the world, the light that has shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John the Baptist, the great prophet, has come to give light, to, to, to bring light, but Jesus is the light. And further, for us as Christians on this side of the cross and the, and the ascension of Christ and the, 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 descending, uh, the descending presence of the Spirit in, in Pentecost, that, that, that idea of light has not changed. It is, shi- it is only shifted in that, as Jesus said, we are the light of the world. His people are now the means by which he shines the light of his grace. Paul says that we are like stars shining in the darkness of the night sky. All of this is to say that the promise of God to pierce the darkness of sin, the darkness of the curse, the darkness of the miseries that, come, that attend to living in a fallen world, the, the realities that we experience in our relationships, in our bodies, in both ourselves and our loved ones, all of that, that that promise that God would make to pierce the darkness has come true as the light of grace showed, shone forth, was shown forth in the birth of the Messiah. Further, there will come a day, as the book of Revelation tells us, when there will be no more darkness. It tells us. Remember, I always talk about Revelation. It's a picture book, not a puzzle book. The picture that we're given in Revelation is that darkness that is attended by things like misery, sin, evil, suffering, affliction, sorrow, tears. All there is no darkness. It's gone. Why? Because God is there. God is there and the, and the sun is the lamp. The Lamb of God is the lamp shining the light of God for the new creation. It is a new form of existence with no darkness at all. Matthew Henry wrote about this, that when the gospel comes to any place, to any soul, light comes, a great light, a shining light, a light that will shine more and more. Well, third, uh, God promises that he will turn our joy to sorrow. Uh, well, I miss, messed up that slide. He will turn our sorrow to joy. Sorry. You're like, you're like that's a downer. That took a turn. It took a real turn here, Pastor. Uh, he will turn our sorrow to joy. Verse 3. Isaiah says that God in his power and grace will multiply the nation of his people. But not only will he increase the size of his people, he will also multiply the joy of his people. There will be an increase in the quantity and quality of joy for his own. In effect, he is saying that in the day of the Messiah, first partially in this life, and then ultimately in the kingdom of God and the new heavens and the new earth, his people will experience what one scholar called, quote, every sort of joy ever known. And I would, and I would add to that joy unknown. There's a kind of joy 
that you can't experience that our beloved have experienced when they go and they leave the, the cursed bodies behind and go into the presence of God. That's a joy we don't know. But there is a joy that also they don't know and we don't know, which is the joy of resurrection bodies in the kingdom, in the new heavens and new earth forever. That's a joy that nobody knows, but we all will know one day because of the Lord and the promises coming true. He describes us. He wants us to get a sense of what's going on here. So he gives us a couple of pictures and he says it's like the joy that comes with the harvest. And now... Some of you have, uh, are more familiar with farming and harvests and you grow your own vegetables and stuff like that. I grew up in the suburbs of Southern California. I have no idea what that means, okay? Uh, I have a little slight idea. I had a slight idea because my aunt and uncle, when I was living with them at 16, did have a garden. And we did in the back and we did and my, and my uncle threatened our lives if we ever ruined anything or got into the beds or anything like that. Um, uh, but but to, to you know eat salad that you grew in your own backyard is pretty awesome. So... Uh, but uh, he's, most of us go to Walmart or Sam's to get our groceries, something like that. We go to Winn-Dixie, whatever it is. We go there, and we don't know the sense of, like, that our food supply depends on this year's harvest, right? We're just like, oh, this Walmart's out of this. Well, I'll go to the other one, right? That's what we do, okay? But the harvest season, you know, if, if, it, you know, if, it, was, uh, if it was a good harvest, you're like, yay, we get to eat this year, right? And if it was like a record-breaking harvest, it was amazing. We could store stuff. We can store it. That's awesome. Like, it's amazing. But it didn't happen that often. You know, it's so, so there is, but imagine the joy there that is there when you're like, yes. The provision, we weren't sure it's going to be, but yes, it's here. Yes, we have it. It's, it's the joy that comes with the sustenance of life that is secured for you. Well, the joy that Isaiah speaks here is a joy at life that is secured eternally for the people of God. And that life that is experienced ultimately in eternity. He also says that this joy is like when the victorious people of a, a, of a conflict divide the spoil of victory and war. There's, a, there, there's joy, first of all, because the threat of hostilities has ceased. The enemy is defeated. If you're at the point where you're dividing up the enemy's stuff, they're long gone, right? You're, 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 way, you're past the battle, right? It's after the Super Bowl. They've got the, the guys holding the trophy, doing the press interviews. You know, they're not worried about losing the game, right? So that's, that's what it's talking about, the joy of it. It is a joy of the people of God who will rejoice because there will be victory over the enemy and there will be peace forever with no threats on the horizon. It is a joy that, that enjoys the rewards of the victory of the Savior who won it for his people. But both of these aspects of joy are experienced in a single context when Isaiah says, they rejoice before you. But to rejoice in the presence of God, to speak that about a people who are going into exile, is a big deal. To enjoy God's bounty and his blessing that requires reconciliation between God and his people. It requires restoration of his people. It requires the overcoming of little things like sin and death. 
All of this has been done in Jesus Christ. The angels, we, we remind ourselves, the angels did not tell the shepherds to wait to rejoice until after Jesus had grown up or after he had gone to the cross. He's like, there will be time to rejoice. Rejoice later, not right now. No, they say, no, no, no. Get, get, your, get, your, get your big boy lungs out and start rejoicing now at his birth before he's done anything except soil a diaper. Why? Because his very birth is the guarantee that the promises are here, they're coming true before your very eyes. And so Jesus in his birth brings joy. He secures joy for us in his birth, in his cross, in his resurrection, and he will fulfill our joy when he returns. Secondly, a weary world rejoices because the Savior has come in verses 4 through 7. Uh, in effect, Isaiah is expounding here as to why the wonderful things he said in verses 1 through 3 will come true. He does so by describing two key things that this child will do. And first, he will break the power of sin. And then, uh, secondly, he, his birth, uh, in effect, will change the world. So verses 4 through 5, we see how his, his, he will break the power of sin. Isaiah speaks of the yoke, the staff, the rod, which will be broken. The imagery here describes the, a, a combination of, of, of oppression by foreign nations of, of the people of Israel. But this is not merely political uh, freedom that we're talking about. It's not statehood that we're talking about. The language describes spiritual dominion and oppression that we experience in this life. Further, it connects us actually back to the story of Gideon and the defeat of the Midianites in the book of Judges. There, Gideon took an impossibly small force against an enemy that was numerically and uh, in terms of their weaponry superior to that what Israel had. And God gave them the victory. They, he routed them before the people of God. And what he is communicating here is that the victory over the oppressor will be sudden, unexpected, and divine. It will be something only God can do. It will be something that we cannot do for ourselves. In fact, he says that when God has done, is done with this, every boot of the trampling warrior will be burned up. And according to scholars, this seems to be a kind of a depiction of Assyrian cavalry, which were feared and had, had already shed much uh, uh, is Israeli blood. But the point here is that the victory of God over the most powerful of enemies will be complete, total, and unchangeable. Indeed, that is what Christ has done for us in his cross. He has defeated the spiritual powers and the dominion of sin. He has set us free by, the, by his blood and that we might love God and live in the light of his grace. And one day Christ will return and put a final end to all evil, sorrow, loss, and pain. Isaiah has promised all these wonderful things. And he centers all these promises in verses 6 through 7 upon the child of whom he says his birth will change the world. This child we see is distinctive in verses 6 and 7. First, we are told that he is a son that has been given. 
for us. Second, he has a very complicated name. His name is so complex, it can actually only be comprehended by a series of four titles. Because it's interesting, because he says his name will be, it's like, and we say, uh, and, and, and Jesus says in Matthew 28, baptize them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. One name, three persons of the Trinity, right? So this, that, that unity there. Likewise, it says he, he has one name. He has a name. What's the name? It's four titles, right? And so it's all talking about this one person that he is wonderful counselor, that he is going to be supernaturally wise, that he is mighty God, that he is divine both in his person and his ability, that he is everlasting father, a benevolent ruler who cares for his subjects as if they are his children. He is the prince of peace, a ruler whose kingdom is marked by prosperity and tranquility. Third, Isaiah says that the increase of his government and peace goes on forever. That is, there is no limit to his rule in time or space. There is nothing that can violate the peace which marks his rule. Because his rule is, as Isaiah says, the fulfillment of the covenant promises made to David. And so, it's, and so this rule that, that is made by this descendant of David is one that fulfills justice and righteousness forever. The church father... Chrysostom wrote about this, and he was talking, he was contrasting the, the, the peace of human rulers versus the peace which the Son brings. He says, The peace which comes from a human being is easily destroyed and subject to many changes. And we know this well. He goes on, But Christ's peace is strong, unshaken, firm, fixed, steadfast immune to death and unending. And so what we need to see is that Christ came into the world. He came in as the Savior. He came in to fulfill the promises of God. But we need to see that He came into, He came not only into the world, but He came into our experience because He was incarnate. He took on flesh. It's crucial for us to see that Christ came into this world as a new development in salvation that was in accordance with the old promises that God had made through the prophets. Further, we need to see that Jesus did not come into the world immune to sin and suffering and sorrow and misery, but he came right into the thick of it, into the heart of it. He came into our world. He came into our lives. He came into our experience. And he did so not just to have someone who understands what we go through. He does that. But he came also to bring an end to it. To bring it to its own end. Where sorrow and suffering and misery will be no more. There is much that wearies us. That wearies our world today. But we rejoice not only then at the birth of Christ, but we rejoice today because the birth of Christ has brought forth joy and salvation and light and the reality of the kingdom of God. And that will only advance until the fullness of all of these promises are realized in Christ's return. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. 
We thank you, Lord. We praise you because even as those who are weary souls with weary bodies who live in a weary world, we rejoice at the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We rejoice at his coming. We rejoice at his ministry. We rejoice at his, his, his death and resurrection for our sake, his ascension and the giving of the Holy Spirit, and that he illuminates our very hearts and souls with gospel grace, that we may be a shining light to the world, that we may shine like stars in the night sky, holding out the word of life to a lost and dying generation. Father, may we do so with joy. May we do so with giving glory unto you. And may you bless us, Father. Give us strength, encouragement as we continue, Father, to endure and persevere in a difficult world. But we know we have a wonderful Savior and wonderful promises that are all yes in Jesus' name. We pray this in his wonderful name then. Amen. Well, let's stand now and lift.